Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Rich, and I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. And uh, it is a joy to be with you this morning. Thank you for coming on a Father's Day Sunday when the sun is out. Uh, there's lots of things in our city that's calling you to someplace else. And to put the effort and the purpose to come here means a ton. Um, want to also welcome those of you who are listening online. Uh, thank you for joining us in that way on our live feed. Um, as we begin, uh, you should have received a bulletin, and I want to point out that inside there, on the inside right, is a space that is blank, and that is there for you to use for jotting down questions, um, thoughts, verses, ideas. If you need to doodle, whatever you need to do to stay engaged with our teaching this morning, that is there for you. Uh, if you're listening online, grab some paper uh, and join us and do the same. Today we are diving into week three of our new sermon series entitled The Sermon on the Mount, which we are looking at the sermon that Jesus taught, considered by many, as the greatest, most powerful, challenging sermon ever given. In uh, the last two weeks, as we've started looking at it, have definitely proven this to be the case. This sermon takes place um, not long after Jesus had gone through this season of 40 days of fasting and temptation, preparing him for ministry. And it's out of this time where Jesus starts preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is drawing near. And immediately his words begin drawing people into a relationship with him. And as Jesus uh, continues his ministry, he begins to call his first disciples. And he also starts doing a ton of miraculous healings from everything from the blind to the demon possessed to the paralyzed um, the, the diseased, you name it. He is doing this everywhere he goes, along with preaching the good news. And he's doing this everywhere. And so the news about him and his ministry and his work is spreading all over the region. We see that in the chapter right before us as it ends, it says large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And so these crowds that are following him, we have to remember as well, are super diverse. Not just because they come from different regions, because they represent different backgrounds, different genders, different cultures, faiths, beliefs, customs, education, financial standing, including those who were considered the clean and unclean of the day. So it's this crazy diverse group of people, along with his disciples, that are beginning to follow Jesus. They're captivated by what Jesus has to say, what he does, how he acts and thinks, how he responds and lives his day-to-day -day life. And this helps us get some context as we get to our verses for today. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 1. And um, if you don't have a Bible, no worries. The text will be displayed on the wall behind me. Um, but let's look at that, starting with Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 1. It says this. Now, when Jesus saw this crowd, diverse crowd full of new people considering following him and his disciples, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, as we gather, we recognize your presence in our midst. As we pause and, and take a deep breath, Holy Spirit, 
We know you are as close as our very breath. And this morning, we ask that you would teach us. We recognize that your word often, and as I believe today, challenges us to live in ways that are far different from what we would normally do. Help us to hear from you, God. Help us to respond uh, to the things you're challenging and encouraging us with. Open your word to us in a real way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Jesus sees these disciples, this crowd of followers, and begins to teach them. If you remember last week, this idea of him going on this mountainside, or for our satellites, a hill. This was a hill, not a mountain. Um, And when he climbs this hill to start teaching to this group, these people back then knew what that meant. This was assuming the position of a teacher. A person was about to speak, and this is a person that they wanted to listen to. And so these people, as we should today, should be listening and responding as students would. Because this is Jesus, the word of God, the voice of God, the exact representation of God, teaching about and painting a picture for us of what it's like in the kingdom of God. And the first thing he says is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And upon hearing this, just like the audience Jesus was speaking to, we all go, what? Right? (laughs) That can't be serious. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. No one wants either of these descriptions for themselves, and no one looks at people who are poor and who are mourning and goes, that's what I want, right? And we're finding this with each of these Beatitudes, that they go very much against the way we think and live, how we see and respond and treat ourselves and others, and how we think about God. And one of the things we saw with these first two is that they build off of each other. The poor in spirit are anyone lacking that animating power to live and feel and move in any way who can recognize this, own it, and see their situation of poverty accurately and honestly no matter what it is. We learn that when we are able to honestly confess that and own that and live into this reality, it gives us cause to mourn to acknowledge that this is not how things are supposed to be. We learned that when we do mourn, rather than hide our helplessness, our need, and our poverty, it's in that place where we are now able to experience the true comfort and desire, the the true comfort we need and desire. Now, it's also important for us to remember that each of these Beatitudes are going to feel crazy because ever since sin entered our world that we saw in Genesis, our way of seeing the world has changed. We moved from what the scripture described as being naked and unashamed to hiding our nakedness. And we learned that word nakedness in chapter 3 of Genesis actually means helplessness, hiding our helplessness. And so ever since then we have believed this lie that says our need, our helplessness, our poverty, our lack, our mourning is unacceptable to God. And this lie has affected each and every one of us in the way we see and live and move. In other words, shame affects everything. And so as Jesus continues to paint us a picture of the kingdom of God, he starts with these two strokes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he does another stroke. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
He continues then to invite us deeper into this picture, building on it. And he says this in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And we almost immediately go, hold on, I got a problem with this, because I have no idea what this word meek means, right? No one uses this word. And if we do hear the word at any time, it's not one that we go, that's probably a good thing, right? And what we've learned with these Beatitudes, right, being poor or mourning, this word meek does not initially have a positive connotation in our culture. It suggests many things, none of which sound appealing, none of which we're kind of hoping for. And if you look at the thesaurus quickly, you see there's some words, humble, docile, mild, calm, gentle, tame, peaceful, submissive, soft, spineless, passive, and broken. Now, some of those are positive. Others not so much, right? Other sources use phrases to describe meekness. Here's a couple of them. Meek means to eat dirt or to lick the dust or to cringe like a dog or to take it on the chin. There you go. I want that, right? These graphically illustrate the problem that we have in understanding this word. Try to pump some of these words into the beatitude. Blessed are the spineless, for they will inherit the earth. Sounds a little odd. Or, or blessed are those who eat dirt or lick the dust, right? It's hard to imagine anyone would say this, let alone Jesus, right? Most of us tend to associate meekness with weakness, as if Jesus said, blessed are the weak. For instance, on Father's Day, if I had all the fathers stand up and I said, thank you all for being so meek, you might think that means you have no backbone, Right, that you're not strong. Or if I said, this woman right here is meek, we might understand that in our culture to mean that they are easily taken advantage of. And so it's no wonder uh, we don't want to be called meek. But this word is a word that Jesus uses to describe his followers in the kingdom of heaven. So we need to figure out what this means. Now, to the ancient Greeks, if you go back and study it, meekness described a virtue that lay midway between two extremes. A meek person was neither timid nor given to fits of anger. Aristotle defined this as the absence of excessive anger. But he also said it meant getting angry at the right time for the right reason in the right way. The Greeks also used the word to describe mild words, soothing medicine, refreshing wind, and a wild horse that's been tamed. And so if you think of these four descriptions, what do they have in common? Well, they all represent different forms of power that can be harnessed for good or for evil. So a meek horse, for example, is not a weak horse or a less powerful horse, but rather one that has been brought under the master's control. Or a meek medicine is one that's used properly, has the strength to heal, taken advantage of, can be destructive to the body. A meek wind can be refreshing and calming, but we all know that wind can turn into a tornado and just destroy everything. If you look at the Old Testament, particularly Psalm 37, the equivalent Hebrew word is used to describe a person who is submissive to the will of God. So the meek is one who has yielded its rights to God um, in a wonderful way, that they kneel, that they might stand. 
Keep silent that they may speak later. Or they, the idea is that they have no need to insist upon having um, things go according to their own way, which that's hard for us. Now, the specific word here translated meek is the word prouse, which even the word sounds kind of lame, right? Prouse? Be prouse. That sounds like that is not motivating, right? But it means gentle, mild, humble. Now, one of the most commonly used definitions, if you do a search on Google, you're going to find quoted everywhere is this idea of power under control. It's quoted everywhere. And so the meek person has enormous power, but uses it only when they need it. Now, uh, many of you know I've played soccer most of my life, and I've coached for many years. And one of the things I always used to uh, tell kids that I was coaching is to remember to focus on accuracy before power. Because at the end of the day, power is not helpful without control, right? But little kids, when they see a ball, all they want to do is just blast it. They're not thinking about control. They're not thinking about where it goes. They just want to kick it as hard as possible. You can see how that would not be helpful for a team. So meekness is this idea of being power brought under control, which is why the Greeks used this word to describe a person silent, a person silent in the face of insults or a king that's lenient in his rule. Now, if you do a quick survey of the New Testament, we see a lot of verses showing us the importance of this idea of being meek. Galatians 5, through 23 lists meekness as one of the fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit itself produces it in us, and that alone. Colossians 3.12 includes it as part of the spiritual clothing that uh, Christians are to put on. James 1, 19 through 21 tells us that meekness is the opposite of anger and moral filth. And Titus 3 says that it's the basic attitude that we are to have towards everyone, all people, no matter what, especially those who oppose us. But did you know that only two people in the Bible were specifically called meek? First, Sunday school answer, Jesus is describing himself, for example, in Matthew, where he says this, Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle or meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus, describing himself, uses this word. The second person is Moses. And we see in Numbers 12, verse 3, it says, Now Moses was a very humble, that word is humble means meek, humble man, more humble or more meek than anyone else in the face of the earth. There's a descriptor. Now, I don't know about you and what word you would initially use to describe Moses, but the word meek doesn't usually pop into my mind easily. After all, here's a guy who, when he came down from uh, the mountain with the Ten Commandments in anger at this orgy that's happening at the bottom of the mountain, he just throws down the tablets, right? Or, or there's that time when in a fit of anger, he kills this Egyptian and goes, hides the body, right? There's a story, uh, Later, he went toe-to-toe with Pharaoh, right up into his face, let my people go, and he had no problem facing the most powerful man of his day. 
He led children of Israel across the Red Sea. I don't normally put the word meekness to describe him. But to understand this description of Moses, you've got to get to the story, the background. And Numbers 12.1 tells us this Moses had married a, a Cushite woman, which is a, a black African woman. And his decision, which was not forbidden, since God had not made any laws about this, was criticized openly by his brother Aaron, who was the high priest, and Aaron's wife, Miriam. And before I go on, I just want to do a quick side note. This is not a place in Scripture that's saying interracial marriages are wrong. And if you hear someone text using this text to say opposite, they are misquoting it, misunderstanding this story. They're way off. I'm going to leave it at that. That's my little side note. Side note, interracial marriages are just fine. Uh, but Numbers 12, 1 through 2 says this. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. They said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this, which he always hears, but that's one of those like, "Uh uh-oh, right? (laughs) The answer, of course, is yes, God had spoken through them, but that didn't give them the right to, to talk smack about Moses. That's the biblical translation talks smack and verse 2 tells us that God heard their critical comments that's not going to bode well for these guys Moses and Aaron and Miriam get called to meet God in front of the tabernacle which is number two sign this is probably not going to go well for them and then he tells Aaron and Miriam to step forward man and we get to verses 6 through 8 and God says to them listen to my words When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And that's when we go, snap. That is rebuke mode right? God basically says, I speak to Moses face to face. He's my guy, right? I trust him with the future of my people. And if I want to say something about his wife, I will do it myself. He doesn't need your criticism. I don't need your help. And who do you think you are to have any opinion at all about who Moses marries? And we all go, ouch, right? Now, verses 9 through 12 continue until the consequences that come up. It gets worse. Miriam is stricken with leprosy, the equivalent of AIDS back then, which causes Miriam to be white as snow. It's as if God said to her, Moses's wife is black, and you think white is better. Fine. You're going to be white all over, right? It's this judgment fitted to the sin of racial prejudice. God despises the conceited attitude of those who look down on others simply because of the color of their skin. For Samuel says it this way, the Lord does not look at the things people look at, thank God. People look, the, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We should remember this. Now, as this happens, 
Miriam's experiencing this. Uh, Aaron all of a sudden has a change of heart, surprisingly, about Moses. And he realizes he's been on the wrong side. He quickly confesses and begs Moses to pray for Miriam and she, that she might be healed, right, of this leprosy. Now, what's really interesting is uh, what this has to do with meekness and Moses. And it has to do with what Moses was doing this entire time. And the answer is he was doing nothing. His first recorded words come in verse 13, where Moses cries out to the Lord after all of this and says, please, God, heal her. It's at this point where Moses shows meekness. He didn't fight back. He didn't answer his critics. He didn't get angry. He didn't argue and try to explain his actions. He didn't seek revenge. He didn't complain about their unfair treatment. Instead, he kept silent. He let God take up his cause. He only opens his mouth to pray for Miriam. And honestly, if we think about that, how often do we do that? We are so the opposite. It reminded me of a soccer story, which is shocking, uh, where I was in the state semifinals, and we're playing this team from Federal Way, which, just to be clear, is in unincorporated King County. Just the difference here between King County, unincorporated King County. Um, but we were playing this team, semifinals, and they had a player on this team that uh, I was given the sole job of marking. His name, and I will clarify clearly, is Ricky Greenwood. And Ricky Greenwood was easily a foot taller than me, very large, very fast African-American male. And uh, most people could not stop him. He was way faster, very strong, and left-footed. I was given the task to stay on this person because I had the same speed as him, and I also knew his weakness, which was his right foot. So I was basically given the job to frustrate him for the entire game, which I was doing very successfully. And Ricky is, um, those of you who go back to the Sonics know Gary Payton. He was uh, a trash talker. He liked to say things and push your buttons and literally push you. So this entire game, he is just talking smack, he's pushing on me, all these kinds of things. We're toward three-quarters of the way into the game. It's a corner kick situation. Now, those of you who know soccer, you got a foot advantage on a corner kick. Uh, there's a higher percentage of them getting the header than the short guy. We're in this pile of people in front of the goal, and he is pushing and shoving. He is talking down to me. He's saying all these mean things. Corner comes, and I come, and I take my hand, and I put my hand on his shoulder, and I boost myself up, and I beat him on the header. As I'm coming down, Ricky Greenwood, in his frustration and anger, swings, full, like, swing. Now, I had downward momentum, and uh, in perfect judgment, I duck, and then went, bam, clocked him right in the head. And then immediately came to my senses and ran for my life. And the entire bench of both teams cleared, and everyone is running. There was four red cards given out and lots of yellow cards, and it was a horrible way for this game to kind of come to a ceasing halt. Um, I did not show meekness. Uh, <laughs> When I was pushed, when he was saying things about me and spoke negatively to me, I did not respond 
the way the Holy Spirit would lead me. I had nothing of that in my mind. And the reality is, that's the thing about meekness. This quality is not natural. It is supernatural. The natural response to adversity and criticism and people pushing at us and saying things about us is to push back, to fight, to be angry, or maybe to be in despair. But the meek person responds differently because the Lord is in control of their life. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit at work in their life. Which leads me to suggest an expanded definition of meekness. And that is, to be meek is to be self-controlled based on God's control through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. This is a truly supernatural virtue produced by the Holy Spirit in us. And this is how it builds off of these two previous Beatitudes. We start with understanding and owning our state of poverty before God, our need. We need him. And rather than hide this true identity, we're able to honestly mourn the truth that things are not as they should be, which causes us to surrender and submit ourselves to the only one who can provide the things that we need, the only one who can defend us, Jesus. And so meekness comes because you have so surrendered your life to God so that he is free to demonstrate his power in and through you in the most difficult moments of your life. And it's always going to look far different from the way our world and ourselves naturally want to deal with it. Some examples of this demonstrated in the Bible include the meekness that gave Abraham the courage to leave Ur. Or the meekness that enabled Joseph to withstand Potiphar's wife. It sustained Daniel in the lion's den. And then there's Esther. Uh, What we see over and over again is that people who accomplished the most for God were the women and men whose power were completely yielded to God. Which this helps us see this idea of meekness and this quality in the life of Jesus. He was the most powerful man ever to live on this earth, and yet his power was always under his father's control. We see him get angry, but he doesn't sin. He rebuked the Pharisees, but ate with prostitutes and tax collectors. He welcomed children, washed disciples' feet, spoke to giant crowds, but could feel the touch of a woman whose fingers barely brushes the hem of his garment. Jesus could raise the dead, cast out demons, and calm a stormy sea. Yet the Bible says in Isaiah 53, 7, it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus didn't debate Pilate. He didn't curse Herod, and he didn't fight the soldiers or talk back to his mockers. Paul describes Jesus this way. Jesus, being who in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is a picture of true meekness. It's ultimate power under God's control through the Holy Spirit. Which gets us to, what does that look like today? How do we put this into our life? And the thing is with meekness is that it's a quality that is best demonstrated when you're dealing with unreasonable people, competitors, and antagonists, and adversaries, right? It's not hard to be gentle when you're feeling good and have no pressure. Uh, But that's not meekness. That's just being nice. Meekness is seen when you're under the gun, when you're up against a deadline, when you're pushed and surrounded by problems and injustice, when your character is being questioned or your abilities are being doubted. It comes up in comparisons and competitions and when we see others oppressed. Pretty much any time you have a strong opinion about someone or something and there's a disagreement, it's an opportunity where your meekness could come into play. It comes out when you're tired, when you're getting picked on, or when you're feeling frustrated, and it can happen really with regards to pretty much any subject or situation you can think of. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, comments that meekness comes from having a right view of yourself before God. And this, again, connects to these previous two Beatitudes. You don't worry about what others say about you because you have been honest about your poverty and your need and your mourning, and you have nothing to hide. And in doing so, you know what it's like to be fully loved and fully seen. And so with our relationship with God, this is not that hard to understand, right? If God is with us and calls us on something, a weakness, a struggle, a stronghold, or a sin, we're pretty good at being meek before God because it's God, right? God knows us better than we know ourselves, and so we can receive this. But when you think about meekness with regards to yourself and others, it's really hard. Sometimes we can be our worst enemy. We will criticize ourselves. We will doubt ourselves. We will hurt ourselves. We will starve ourselves. We'll punish ourselves. We'll tell our own self lies. And so we have these battles within. What does it look like to address these self-spoken, self-administered battles with meekness that are going on inside of us? How do we show meekness to ourselves? And when you think about others, the meek person does not fight for their own rights, does not insist upon personal vindication, does not always have to correct others, do not repay in kind, and they... um, don't return insult for insult. They don't use social media to speak badly about others. 
And they don't use force and intimidation to get their way. But that's what we see all the time. That's the actions we see in our world every day. We very rarely see examples of meekness in our world. But this is what God is inviting us, calling us to be examples of. And we cannot do this without the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to leave us with kind of three practical but not necessarily easy ways to to start trying to put this into practice. Uh, And it's going to affect how you see and treat yourself, how you see and treat others, and how you see and relate to God. So if you want to write these down, you can. Three practices, and again, not necessarily easy, but I think if we start doing some of these, this is going to lead us on a path to helping us experience what it means to be meek. The first one is to be people who respond in gentleness whenever provoked. This is that idea of being slow to speak and quick to listen. And this applies to ourself. This applies to others and to God. When you're telling your own self lies, saying negative things to yourself, or when others are saying things to you, or even when God is calling you, rather than being so fast to push back in the fight, be slow to speak and quick to listen. The second one is to be bold in the face of evil. Now, I want us to remember this idea of being tamed and the idea of power under control. There will be times that we are led by and empowered by the Holy Spirit to stand up to evil and to roar like lions, not in anger, but in love for the sake of others and for the gospel. And that boldness to do so can only come from the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to be honest with you to say that I think the areas of homelessness and the hungry and refugees and kids being taken from their families are so good examples of where this may be happening. Now, I don't know what that looks like, but that's where we need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to know what does it look like to respond in gentleness when we're being provoked and what does it look like to be bold in the face of evil? The third one is to be authentically approachable and open to learn from others. And again, this especially includes those we differ from or disagree with, right? If we are closed to learning from people, if we can't even listen to people, if we can't allow people who are different from us to approach us, there's no way we're going to be meek. And hopefully you see, they're practical, they're not easy. Thankfully, we have the Spirit to help us. Now, final note, this verse has a promise attached to it. It's this idea that the meek will inherit the earth. Notice that wording. We shall inherit the earth. And that word I want us to focus on is this word inherit. Because it it takes us back to the relational core of the Beatitudes 
because an inheritance is something that comes to family. It comes to friends, to those we know, that we care about, that we are in relationship with, with that we love the most. And, and Jesus is pointing to this future inheritance that is ours, who are part of the kingdom of God, the family of God, those who are followers and disciples who are in a relationship with God, those who love God. It's not based on what we do. It's not a law. It's not a rule. It's about family. And it's about a relationship. And so just like we long to be comforted in the midst of our mourning, but we so often avoid mourning altogether, Jesus is saying, don't believe the lies of the world. I know everything that is going on in your soul that is telling you to fight back just like the world does, to insult and to force and to push and to defend, to get your way all the time, to tyrannize no matter what it takes. But Jesus is telling us that is not the way to get the promised inheritance. That day when I punched Ricky Greenwood, I did not show meekness, and I did not get what I wanted. In fact, I was kicked out of the game just like he was. I was no different from him. I hurt him. I hurt myself. My hand hurt for like a week. And I hurt my team. And when we respond to pushback like the world does, rather than being meek, we hurt ourselves, we hurt others, and we are not representing the kingdom of God as Jesus is inviting us to. May we be men and women who are meek in the face of all the things going on in our world. This time I'd like to invite our worship and prayer team to come forward. And as they do, I do have a question or two for you to ponder as kind of a form of application. So in your bulletin, if you could pull out that connection card and flip it over, that would be fantastic. And um, there's three questions, even if you answer one that would be awesome. And we really do use these as a way to engage how you're hearing the text and responding to it, but also just to pray for you. So um, if you wouldn't mind doing so, that'd be great. Question number one, on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate yourself at being meek? And there's not a right or wrong. I can't question you on this. Just on your own, learning about this word, what does it look like for you? How would you rate yourself at being meek? Number two, of the three practices, which do you see as hardest and which do you see as the easiest? And just a reminder, responding in gentleness whenever provoked, being bold in the face of evil, or being authentically approachable and open to learn. Which of those is hardest? Which of those do you think might be the easiest? And the last one is just to list a person that you find it really hard to be meek with. And the reason why I ask you to do that is because I want to pray for you. Because I know you all have people. I know I do. I guarantee you if I saw Ricky Greenwood again, I would still have some stuff I would want to deal with. List a person so we could be praying for you. Now, the worship team is going to take a few moments to play kind of instrumentally to give you a little space to respond um, as you go today, if you could drop that card in one of those wood boxes, that would be great. I also want to make sure you know our prayer team is up here. Um, 
if you're thinking of that person right now and you're like, man, I need some prayer, they were here for you. If you have other things that you would like prayer for, if you're thinking of things that are happening in our country right now that you would like to pray about, please come take advantage of that. After the team has played for a few moments, um, Brian's going to invite us to stand and join in a song of response. Um, But before we do anything more, let me close us in prayer. Oh, Father, Son, Spirit, you have once again challenged us in pretty much every way we think and feel and move with regards to how we respond to people. We confess and own our lack of ability to respond in the way that you have called us to on our own. We, we acknowledge that. We own that poverty in us. We mourn it because we want to respond in the way that you want us to. But God, we surrender that truth to you and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to empower us as men and women to know what it looks like to respond with meekness whether that's with an individual, whether that's in the workplace, with, with regards to our family or with our kids and our neighbors or even in some of the other realms that are going on in our, in our country. God, help us, Holy Spirit, to know how to respond with meekness as a way to be a representative of the kingdom of God. Lord, we need you. Fill us, empower us, be with us, help us to yield to you that we might be meek. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Stand and sing with me.